This is your host, Caitlin Cook, and welcome back to the Dead Kate Bounce Experience. This week's guest is Jill Gunter. Jill is co-founder and chief strategy officer at Espresso Systems, which is building privacy and scalability solutions for Web3. Previously, Jill invested in crypto, blockchain, and fintech with San Francisco-based VC fund Slow Ventures and served as an advisor to a range of projects and institutions from the IMF to startups like Zcash and Algorand. She started her career as a bond trader at Goldman Sachs in New York City. I'm so excited to have Jill as my second guest to unpack an important and often misunderstood aspect of crypto, which is privacy. Again, this is a topic that's commonly misunderstood and on several fronts. For those outside of the industry, the common storyline has historically been that the perceived anonymity crypto provides allows it to be used as a means for performing illicit activities. Juxtapose that with what many of those in the crypto community know all too well. The data transparency that blockchain technology provides is like nothing we've ever seen before. In fact, transparency is often cited as one of the main cornerstones of the emerging crypto space. But like anything else, enhanced data transparency is a double-edged sword. Those in the crypto space, from your average retail investor to institutions to even regulators themselves, are still trying to wrap their heads around what an ideal solution looks like. How much transparency is too much transparency? And how much privacy is too much privacy? In short, what data should the masses have access to and why? We've seen this play out recently with the story of Tornado Cash, which Jill and I talk about today. And as always, the answer to the question of how we solve on-chain privacy is a nuanced one. But there's no better person to provide clarity on this topic than today's guest. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Jill. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency. Jill, longtime follower, first time caller. Welcome to the podcast. Nice to finally actually see you via Zoom. I feel like I've known you on Twitter for, for years, which is a weird thing that only Twitter obsessed people can relate to, but someone feels me out there. Likewise. I, I don't know how you feel about this, but whenever someone kind of you meet in real life for the first time or even on Zoom says to me, oh, I think I know you from Twitter. I'm kind of like, <laughs> do I apologize now? How do I handle this? I'm far less obnoxious in real life, I assure you. <laughs> Just apologize in advance as soon as someone says that. I am so sorry that you've had to see that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Shouting into the void. Oh my gosh. But no, a uh, long, long time follower of yours uh, on the interwebs as well. So very glad to be joining you here and to finally meet uh, live. Yes, overdue, Great. overdue. We love the podcast, bringing people together. I'm um, so super excited to have you on for all things, you know, privacy in Web3. I think there's a lot to talk about, lots of timely things that we can, can go through. But first, always want to give people sort of an intro on your background, just because I think that's important for setting the scene as well as, um, you know, big fan of of the folks that are building in Web3 with that traditional finance background as well and understanding the market infrastructure and where they're coming from and how to make scalable solutions that are better than what we're using today. And that certainly applies in this case. So maybe just start out with where you started and your crypto origin story. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I guess the journey down the rabbit hole, as it were, uh, started out when I was working on Wall Street, as you alluded to. Um, I started out my career on a trading desk at Goldman Sachs in New York. Specifically, I was trading Latin American sovereign debt and derivatives. So I was trading Argentine debt, Venezuelan debt. Um, This was not too long after uh, the 2008 financial crisis. So we had not only to deal with sort of the debt restructurings that were going on in the actual names that we were trading, but we were also at the time kind of dealing with a big 
not debt restructuring, but just restructuring as a as a whole of kind of how Wall Street gets run. Um, you know, Dodd-Frank was coming into effect at the time, uh, and there were just kind of a lot of changes afoot in general. And so I highlight kind of both of those things, both the desk that I was on and also sort of the broader context of what was going on on Wall Street at the time, because I think that both of those dynamics were really kind of integral to my journey again into Bitcoin and, and down that rabbit hole. Um, because on the one hand, I was seeing sort of play out in uh, these asset classes that I was having kind of firsthand exposure to, again, of places like Argentina and Venezuela, uh, the debt of these countries. Um, I was speaking on a daily basis to brokers uh, down on the ground in these places, and they all started telling me about the very high inflation rates, the capital controls that they were dealing with, um, and at some point started telling me specifically about Bitcoin and how they were using Bitcoin to get their money offshore. And, you know, these are sophisticated sort of financial players that I was talking to uh, who, were, who were selling me on this in sort of 2012, 2013, not selling me, of course, in my capacity as Goldman Sachs, but just kind of selling me in the capacity of like these types of friendly conversations that you have. And so, again, that was kind of one dynamic and one sort of foray uh, that I was making into the crypto space. And then on the other hand, being sort of the junior kid on a trading desk, and especially I think in that era where there's a lot of regulatory reform happening, there's a lot more risk controls being rolled out at the bank, all of that just slides downhill onto the lowly analysts who are on the desk to deal with and to sort out and to understand what's needed. Um, and so I think that that was kind of another sort of pivotal uh, thing that was happening at the time, again, was just that I was getting all of this exposure to all of the ways in which the financial system as a whole had just sort of crumbled and broken down over the preceding years. Um, and it, it really did, I think, sort of put uh, uh, put the question in my head of, is there a better way, you know, are there alternatives to the way that we've just assumed that we need to uh, uh, approach financial markets and financial assets. So that was kind of the, the storm of things happening, I guess, early in my career when I was on Wall Street and uh, some of my first introductions to Bitcoin specifically and to thinking about what the alternatives could look like. Love it. And, you know, there's been a lot of stops in between. I've been I was stalking your LinkedIn earlier, of course. Um, <laughs> but now full-time Web3, maybe just a quick overview, again, setting the scene on what we're going to talk about today, obviously very relevant for why I had you on, is what you're building with Espresso Systems. And we can talk a little bit more about why it's so important, uh, and especially in light of recent events after that. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, from Wall Street, um, amidst all of that, I, I made my way into the crypto space. At the time, there was no such thing as Web3. No one was calling it that. Really, at the time, all there was was Bitcoin and Ethereum was just kind of an idea coming into being. Um, and it's been a really amazing journey to be working and researching and building and investing in this space over all of the intervening years, almost a decade now. And where I want to start with this question maybe is just the fact that my experience of building and researching and investing in this space has been one of kind of a push and a pull where you'll start in on, on, on an idea and think to yourself and say, oh, wow, okay, there's really something here that can uh, be a much better alternative to, let's say, a security settlement system or a system for cross-border payments and remittances. And you'll start in kind of on that use case. And then as you get deeper and deeper into it, and I think this goes for really any nascent technology, I don't think that this is just crypto specific, but we've all felt this very acutely for those of us who've been in the space for this long now, and even are in the space today, you'll start to uncover like, oh wait, this actually isn't a better alternative for this reason or that reason, or this technical limitation that exists right now, or the fact that you have this sort of dependency on the existing incumbent system that's still gonna be a bottleneck to the thing that you're actually trying to do. 
And then you go through this kind of very personal, almost trough of despair of like, oh God, you know, none of this is ever going to work out. And then you come through the other side and you say, okay, no, but there are ways to build around this or kind of hacky ways of putting this together such that that's not a bottleneck anymore, or there are technical solutions to this thing that I thought was going to be this intractable problem. One of these problems that has come up for me over and over and over again, as I've looked into different Web3, crypto, Bitcoin, even specifically use cases, is the issue of privacy. And that, it, it's kind of funny to me, was even called out in the original Bitcoin white paper. You know, Satoshi talks about privacy in the original Bitcoin white paper and says, you know, privacy in the traditional financial system is mostly solved through having intermediaries who are sort of trusted with the identities of the players involved and all of the transactional details. That's not going to fly here in this new Bitcoin thing because we don't have middlemen. That's the whole point. Uh, and the system, in fact, relies on everything being broadcast to everyone all the time, which is not something actually that a lot of people sort of in passing understand about Bitcoin and crypto. I think that Bitcoin got this sort of reputation of being this sort of uh, fully secret, fully anonymous currency back in the early days. But that is not at all how the system works. Everything is broadcast to everyone all the time. And this, to my point a second ago, precludes so many different types of use cases of the technology. It precludes so many different types of users coming in and experimenting with it. I mean, even for myself as just a retail user of it, there were points in time where I want to go, you know, use a given application or experiment with something. And I'm sort of like, oh, this is a little uncomfortable because really, you know, anyone who cares to will be able to trivially look up my Ethereum address. I've posted it on Twitter. I've posted it all over the place so that people can send me things or so that a friend can send me an NFT or I can participate in one of these things. Uh, they'll be able to then see exactly what I'm doing. And that's just me as like an individual retail user. Once you start thinking about institutions looking at this technology, Forget about it. You know, if I'm if I'm an institutional fund, I'm not going to have any interest in using something that is going to be leaking my alpha and leaking my proprietary strategy in real time. If I'm a merchant, I'm not going to be interested in accepting payments in this thing that's going to leak all of this data to my competitors and so forth. And so privacy is really kind of this this problem that I got hooked on going back a few years ago. And it's that problem of how to ensure that people can determine who can see what about their on-chain transactions and under what circumstances that data gets disclosed. That's kind of at the heart of what we're working on at Espresso. So I can get into kind of what we've built so far and, and what's on the roadmap, but that's, that's again, uh, one of these, I think, really core problems that the industry is facing. And it's the problem that I'm really excited to, to be working on solving. Awesome. And you brought up so many important points there too, right? I think, first of all, the stereotypes from a lot of people from the outside haven't maybe haven't read the white paper, right? Have just uh, kind of continuing to, um, I guess, extrapolate some of the stereotypes about the space from earlier days, right? For illicit activity, that it's shady, that there's, you know, more secretive when in fact, to your point, there's so much data available in this space that I think it, you know, I, I just remember when I started in crypto, I didn't even know what to do with it because there was so much. And with anything new, you know, the intent is good, right? We saw it in the white paper for like what, you know, removal of intermediaries and creating a transparent system and all of these things that we hear about so often, you know, any new technology, there could be good intent there, but it might not work in practice or be, a, you know, a real solution depending on what people are, you know, aiming to build versus what's actually built. And you iterate and you iterate more and you come to something that's more of a happy medium between probably two extremes. And I think we're seeing that play out now, especially with what you're building with Espresso and what we've seen others talking about in regard to privacy. So I guess definitely want to hear more about what you're building with Espresso on that front. Um, and then also just setting the scene for people who maybe haven't been diving into this space as much as you and I working in it. Um, what is 
you know, the actual state of privacy in Web3 today, perception versus reality. And is all of this necessarily true? That is censorship uh, resistant, open source, decentralized, transparent. We can get into whether that's a good or a bad thing. Obviously, again, happy medium. But what's the what's the current state of Web3 and privacy and how is Espresso kind of solving for improving that? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, there's so much to cover with this, which is why I'm <laughs> going off on, on these tangents here already. You can forgive Go me. Go off, but, please. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, to start maybe just with that question of what is the state of privacy in Web3 today? I would say 99.9 plus percent of transactions, as I was saying before, are fully transparent to everyone all the time. And for those of you who are maybe wondering, okay, what does that actually mean? Or what does it look like? I'd encourage you to go on the website etherscan, E-T-H-E-R scan.com. Um, and you can type in, you can type in my Ethereum address. It's fine. It's out there. It's just jrg.eth. So that's kind of my, uh, sort of plain text, if you will, um, username that you can type in and you will be able to see how much I donated to the crisis in Ukraine. When I did that, you will be able to see every NFT I've ever bought and sold. You will be able to see every trade I made. You'll be able to, if you wanted to and get sort of really complicated, you could see what other wallets on the Ethereum network I probably own and probably even then figure out when I first bought Ethereum. All kinds of information, right, that I don't know why I'm telling you all this because it's kind of uncomfortable to have out there. But so again, I would say, you know, on most chains, so Ethereum, Bitcoin, Solana, Avalanche, you know, all of these layer one blockchains, pretty much everything is all transparent. And of course, it's on those chains that the vast, vast, vast majority of transactions are happening and that volumes going through. And so again, almost everything out there is pretty much fully transparent. And now you might be able to say, oh, well, okay, but what if I were to create a brand new wallet that wasn't linked to anything and so on and so forth? Okay, that's fine. You might be able to do that, but at some point someone's gonna transact with that wallet, even if it's you sending money to yourself. And then suddenly you'll be part of this overall web that there are all of these companies out there like Chainalysis, like TRM Labs, that specialize in doing, I mean, risk management, they play an important role in the ecosystem, but they specialize in basically untangling that web and being able to demonstrate pretty trivially, okay, whose wallet is likely whose and, and what's going on here. So again, that's most of what, what pri the state of privacy in Web3 looks like. Then a very small percent of transactions occur in places and on platforms that guarantee or aim at guaranteeing pretty much full privacy or full anonymity. And so this is where we start to get into projects and products like Tornado Cash, which I think we'll get into a little bit later. So Tornado Cash is a smart contract system uh, that exists on Ethereum. So just think of it as an application that exists on this underlying platform, right? So it's an application that lives on Ethereum that functions as what we can call a privacy pool, which means that I can deposit assets into it and you and a bunch of other people can deposit assets into it. And then I can withdraw to it indeed to a brand new wallet. And you, unless I've sort of slipped up somehow and I've you know, deposited exactly some very specific number and then five seconds later withdraw again that very specific number, in which case you can probably plausibly guess that's probably the same person. If I'm quite careful about sort of how I go about it, I can create sort of a brand new identity on the other side of it and achieve some level of privacy in a way that I wouldn't be able to otherwise. Um, but again, a product like Tornado Cash is aiming at everything being fully private to all people all the time. So almost like government level privacy. I don't even want uh, sort of government level actors to be able to see what I'm doing, let alone my neighbors or competitors or what have you. And that's 
maybe fine. That's maybe important. In fact, I can think of some very legitimate use cases and types of users who might want that, whether they're dissidents um, or whether they are, uh, you know, participating in areas of the economy that uh, aren't supported by the banking system, but are still sort of above board and, and legitimate. I can also, of course, think of very problematic, in my opinion, uses of a technology like that that aren't going to be suitable for a lot of people in the way that they want privacy. Um, and so where Espresso comes in and what Espresso has developed with uh, what we call our configurable asset privacy protocol or CAPE um, is the ability for users and asset issuers and so on to configure again, who can see what and under what circumstances about the transactions going through. So breaking out of this black and white paradigm of all transparent or all private and saying there's much more interesting spaces in the middle where some things can be public to some users and kept private from others. And in your opinion, what, I mean, maybe a tough question, right? Because a lot of it's probably situationally based, but what information is most important to be public in, in your opinion, to promote a more healthy, transparent system versus what is dangerous to have public? Like, where do you differentiate the two? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is going to be such a cop-out answer, <laughs> but I really do think that it depends on the application and the circumstances. And, you know, I think that it's not really for me to determine what should be private and what should be public and under what circumstances. I think that that should be up to the developers that the applications that are getting built on this system. I think that, that should be up to the end users in terms of what their degree of comfort is. I think that one of the most powerful things about crypto platforms is that it introduces a spectrum of optionality to people in a lot of different ways that doesn't exist in traditional finance. It introduces a spectrum of optionality in terms of what assets you hold your money and your savings in. Uh, it introduces a spectrum of optionality to people in how they hold those assets, whether they're custodying with a trusted third party, a la the traditional banking system, like a bank in this case, you know, it would be an exchange like Coinbase or FTX or whatever, or whether they're self-custodying them. And I think the same should be true of privacy, where it should just be about opening up for people the spectrum of optionality of what is visible to whom and under what circumstances. You know, I can I can think through a few different use cases to make it a little bit more um concrete. So, you know, I can think about a payments use case, right, where I, as just a regular sort of retail user of this stuff, I maybe want to get paid by my employer in a stable coin. Maybe that's because I'm cross-border from the employer and, you know, the wire transfers take days to get through the banking system. Um, it might be for a number of different reasons, right, that I want to get paid in the stable coin. But I don't necessarily want the whole world to know what I'm getting paid. Um, and so in that situation, I might be, I mean, I'm of course totally comfortable with my actual employer knowing what I'm getting paid. I might also be totally comfortable with the stablecoin provider knowing what I'm getting paid. Um, you know, whether it's Circle or Paxos or Gemini or Tether, you know, any of these sort of centralized stablecoin providers, not necessarily worried about them in this situation, knowing what my salary is. And in a way, that's akin to the traditional financial system, right? You know, I'm not worried about Chase Bank knowing what I'm getting paid or how much I'm paying for rent or what have you. Uh, but I don't want all my friends and the whole world to know those numbers. And so in that case, again, it's it's completely acceptable to me for certain sort of third parties to know what all of the transactional details of, of these transactions are. I definitely don't need something like Tornado Cash in this case to give me full like government level privacy, uh, but it's definitely a better product and better service for me to have if not everyone knows everything. So again, I think every situation is going to be a little different and that's why we've focused on 
true configurability and sort of, you know, maximum flexibility here. It took us a long time actually to settle on configurable. We went through flexible, programmable, all of these different words for it. But um, I think that it's that kind of flexibility or, or composability, configurability that, that matters most here. And I love that answer just because I think we have such a tendency to talk about things in black or white terms when the answer is always in the middle, almost always. Right. So I, I appreciate the nuance. Which is I such a cop-out. It's such a cop-out <laughs> answer, but nuance is important too. Yeah. No, I mean, I it's more nuance. realistic. It's realistic. Right. And I think that it's a lot more polarizing to put things in like yes or no black or white terms where when we come to a solution on something down the road, um, specific to privacy or otherwise, it's probably going to be somewhere where there is nuance and the answer isn't always the same in every situation and it shouldn't be. So I, I appreciate it. I think that the optionality answer is not a cop-out. I think it's very realistic. Um, but on, on that front, right? So you mentioned tornado cash. I want to get into that because I think that, you know, the real life examples and the things that are happening, um, you know, in present times are always good for helping people sort of latch on to concepts and actually really understand what's going on and why. Um, so you sort of alluded to what Tornado Cash was, you know, created for you, see so that gov government level almost type of privacy around transactions and wallets and whatnot, who's transacting with who. But put simply, you know, you've been you've been dealing with a lot of, um, you know, more public facing discussion around privacy and around the tornado cash situation specifically. So simple terms, what happened um, and how did the legal response vary from some of the scenarios that we've seen in the past play out? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Tornado Cash, as mentioned, is this application that has been living for years on Ethereum. I think that it was first launched in 2019. And it serves, again, as a privacy mechanism or a privacy pool for people to deposit, into, to deposit assets into and then be able to withdraw assets from and get some level of privacy then on the other side. Um, People have used this for all sorts of things. I, I played around with Tornado Cash, just sort of experimenting with it. But I know people who've used it in order to uh, be able to start fresh from a new wallet, to be able to participate in an NFT drop without sort of doxing their whole kind of on-chain Ethereum transaction history. I know people, Vitalik uh, Buterin himself, the creator of Ethereum, came out and publicly said that he had used Tornado Cash in order to have some level of anonymity as he was donating to uh, the Ukraine crisis, which I think is also, you know, very understandable and, and legit use case for this. And uh, according to Chainalysis and other sources that, that look at, again, sort of on-chain data and determine who's doing what and what types of wallets are linked to what types of players, uh, probably about 70% of transactions in and out of Tornado Cash were very kind of legit above board use cases, like the ones that we're describing here. Then there's about 30 to 40% of which or maybe a little bit less above board. And uh, those uses, uh, your listeners have probably already backed into uh, what they might look like, but those uses came down to a few different categories. One uh, was players who've gone in and participated in hacks of various crypto projects built on Ethereum. So hacks of bridges that are sort of, you know, cross chain, hacks of uh, DeFi projects, lending protocols, things like this, uh, exploiting bugs in the code to be able to get access to hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Ethereum and other assets. These types of uh, funds and these types of players who've gone in and, and done these things have in many cases laundered their money or moved their money through Tornado Cash as a privacy preserving system to be able to, they say, kind of start fresh on the other side and presumably to be able to cash those funds out. Um, so that's, again, that's an example of kind of a less legit use case. Uh, I would certainly class it as. Uh, then there's other categories of this, of sort of just illicit activity um, that is believed to have gone through the Tornado Cash system. And again, that comprises anywhere between sort of 30 to 40% of transactions through the system. 
Now, over the last year or so, uh, it's believed, again, and with very good reason, uh, because of all of this on-chain data, that uh, actors associated with North Korea have used Tornado Cash increasingly to move stolen and hacked funds through it, and again, in a, in a sense, launder them and to be able to cash them out on the other side, somewhere to the tune of 400 million plus, which is a lot when you're talking, especially in the context of a country like North Korea. Now, quite understandably, you know, the US government at some point is going to look at this situation and say, whoa, whoa, enough's enough. We need to put a stop to this crazy source of funds for this enemy state that is posing, you know, a very real security threat to the United States and kind of the global world order and all of this. So the U.S.'s reaction to this, which again, it, I mean, on a kind of a personal level, not speaking for the industry, not speaking for my company here, I think it's totally reasonable that there would be a response to this. But the form that the response has taken has turned out to be very controversial. So what's happened is that the Treasury Department, and specifically an arm of the Treasury Department called the Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, which is in charge of sanctions. And, you know, usually they're sanctioning sort of, you know, the president of Venezuela or Vladimir Putin, all of his associates and nieces and nephews and, you know, these types of individuals. Or they might be sanctioning like an entity, you know, like a bank that's run by a group of people that was being used for money laundering, something like this. In this case, OFAC sanctioned the actual code that's running the Tornado Cash system. And so what they did was they put on the sanctions list, I mean, this literally like a, you know, physical document list that gets maintained of all of the sanctioned persons and assets, uh, they put a reference to the smart contract code, again, that makes Tornado Cash work. And that is pretty unprecedented. It might, I might even go, I'm not a lawyer, but I, you know, from my understanding of it, I think that it's pretty completely unprecedented because again, normally it would be persons or property that's being put on this list. Um, and sanctioning code has brought up a whole a whole bunch of uh big questions i would say uh for what the future of government responses to projects like this will look like um to uh what the collateral damage for the legitimate users of of this system uh is is going to be and what the fallout from this action is going to look like uh, as well as a whole bunch of questions just around the nature of privacy and what's sort of acceptable on the privacy front for cryptocurrency as a whole. But that's been what's played out over the last month or so. It's um, It's been an interesting time, to say the least, to be working on these types of systems and projects. It's your time to shine, Jill. It's time to shine. <laughs> um, it's my time to lose a lot of sleep, Caitlin. <laughs> yeah. Duty calls, right? I mean, you have to get a rise to the call of action here, I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, but I, on, on that, right? So a lot of different things. But I think first, sort of some fact checking live while we're doing this. But um, when it came to cracking down on those um, the wallet addresses that they thought were, you know, performing illicit activities versus those who, like you said, were the majority for very reasonable use cases. Were they all, they were all cracked down on, correct? Um, not just, not just a specific few. So, right? yeah. So the deal is by sanctioning the tornado cash addresses or the references to, to the wallet or to the references, excuse me, to the code that's running tornado cash. What OFAC has signaled to the world, uh, to all you know, users of this system, is don't touch this. You know, this is this is a thing that's now on the list. If you transact or interact with it, that is going to taint you, and that's going to be an issue, and you're going to have to file all kinds of you know bureaucratic forms with us to get yourself out of hot water, and that still might not get you out of hot water. You know, you're just not supposed to touch this. And so, you know, I 
know people who had funds tied up in tornado cash at the time who now cannot withdraw those funds because they are not sort of on a technical level frozen but they might as well be frozen because if they try to withdraw those funds you know that's that's going to be a big no-no now there are advocacy groups that are working to get the U.S. government and Treasury specifically uh, to grant some relief for these types of people. And so there may be a process forthcoming in which those folks will be able to file a bunch of forms and be able to sort of legitimately withdraw their funds. But it really remains to be seen um, whether that's going to be the case. So yes, for now, everyone has been affected. That was going to be my next question too, which yeah. you answered, which is um, I'm assuming people had their funds tied up in that, which is very unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully, yeah. hopefully wow. see some see some change or some remedies there in the short term, but we'll see. Um, one of the most important topics I think to talk about with this, which is really interesting, is around kind of freedom freedom of speech first of all, and also like what smart contracts are categorized as, right? How do you crack down on? on it from that perspective and also kind of along the same lines, which is interesting. Normally you would be taking legal action against say a centralized entity or an individual, like you mentioned, wasn't there a developer uh, involved in the tornado ca- uh, cash situation that was actually arrested. And I guess this kind of leads into a bigger, more philosophical discussion about, you know, the role that that code plays of it in, is really more of a freedom of speech issue more than anything else. And I I think there's a lot to unpack there. So we can start with that. (laughs) Oh my gosh, there's so So much much. back here. So on the free speech thing, again, I am not a lawyer, but lawyers who I've spoken to, and I've done a lot of reading about this over the last few weeks as well, seem to suggest that it's a little bit up in the air or in question as to whether or not this is indeed a speech issue. Because just the fact that this contract has been listed on the OFAC list doesn't necessarily mean that like all instances of this code need to be taken down and scrubbed from GitHub and all of the places where they live. Like, you know, the government hasn't come out and said that. That was something that more or less happened during what's called the crypto wars of the uh, 1990s, when the US government classified certain types of strong encryption as uh, weapons, basically, and said, you know, you're not allowed to export these, you're not allowed to post these on internet forums where they'll be read by foreign nationals and so on and so forth. Here, no one has said, like, you can't publish this anywhere. They've just said, you, you can't interact with or transact with this thing. Now, uh, this gets into an interesting question of uh, what often gets called sort of overcompliance, where a company or an institution takes some signals from, you know, some government actions or some regulatory bodies and says, oh, oh, there's there's stuff happening here and we don't want to touch that even with a 10 foot pole. So we're just going to get ahead of this and do things that we haven't even been ordered to do yet. And in this case, GitHub, uh, which is, you know, the code repository, did take down uh, the tornado cache uh, code that was that was being hosted on it. And so that then did raise the question, like, wait, is this is this a speech issue? I think that's where a lot of people have jumped on board and asked that question. Um, I think it's caused a lot of builders in the space to start to rethink where they're hosting their code, where they're building. Um, I know that the folks at Radical, which is a more kind of open, open source and censorship resistant version of a GitHub platform have seen a big uptake in interest in the wake of that. Um, But it's not clear to me, at least, again, whether this is strictly a speech issue in the legal setting or whether this is just a matter of sort of, yeah, GitHub going overboard. Um, Then we get into the question, though, also of what the ramifications are on the actual individuals involved in Tornado Cash. And this, I think, has been a big area of confusion. So as you point out, one of the uh, core developers who was behind Tornado Cash did get arrested on it was either the same day or just the day after this OFAC move became public 
and he got arrested in the Netherlands. And my understanding anyway, is that in the, in the Netherlands, it's not required for the court to make the charges public. And so we actually still don't know why exactly he was arrested. It, you know, it would be sort of surprising if it was nothing at all to do with tornado cash. Um, but it would equally be surprising if he was being arrested and detained just for writing code. That would be very shocking and very worrying. Uh, but, you know, there have also now been reports that, oh, he was linked to, you know, some Russian agencies, things like this. But we just we just don't know. And that is in itself kind of unnerving, um, I would say, as as an industry. And I think it should be uh, uh, something that, you know, we all kind of keep an eye on just to get a better understanding of what the actual ramifications of this are, uh, on those who are sort of just writing code. It definitely makes the, the, uh, the mind wander, I think, just because, right. You think about if you're at a centralized company, a centralized entity, and you put out a product or an idea or a service. And it's very clear of like who the ramifications fall on if something goes wrong, right? If there's some sort of legal recourse and you have to take action against any of the people or the individuals or the company, I think it's a little bit more cut and dry, right? Again, not a lawyer. Um, although I wanted to be at one point, which is funny now. We all um, wanted to go to law right? school at one point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we didn't do it, right? Which may be for the best. Um, crypto is fun. But um, I think when it comes to like Web3 and everything becoming more decentralized, right? The idea of having core contributors to a network or a project that is not necessarily a company where a lot of different people from different areas of the world can contribute in different ways. I think it creates more of a gray area from a legal perspective of how do we handle that and who do you go to when something goes wrong? Like, how do you solve for that? So I think that that's another big thing, um, you know, in like the nascent stages of any sort of technology or industry being developed that have to be thought through and situations like this really bring it to the forefront of, you know, this is a big topic that we're going to need to think about and solve for moving forward. And I think it's important. I'm not even sure that it creates a gray area from a legal perspective strictly, but I do think that something that often gets lost in these conversations is the difference between what the law says and what policymakers can say and, and do, and then what enforcement actually looks like on whatever those regulations are. And so, I mean, one kind of interesting dynamic here is that, you know, Tornado Cash has been added to the OFAC list as at the code itself, right? It, you know, in reference, but Tornado Cash is still up and running. It's still, it's still going, you know, it's this sort of, you know, in crypto, people like to say it's like unstoppable code and on, on some level it is. And, you know, the Tornado Cash developers, even seem to have thought some of this through beforehand, wherein uh, there is no sort of key or group of people uh, or individual who can update these contracts now that they're out there and running on the Ethereum blockchain. And I think that this is an important thing for us to ask ourselves about and also reckon with as we're building these products. You know, I think that there's a lot of sort of the ethos of censorship resistance is good in all cases and you know uh the notion of being able to build an immutable unstoppable product is is so powerful but we also have to be very thoughtful and very careful about how we wield that power um especially thinking through again you know some of the consequences here you know i am i consider myself a uh privacy advocate, but I also definitely don't consider myself a privacy maximalist. And similarly, I think that the same type of conversation can be applied to censorship resistance and decentralization, where again, you can see the power of it to uh, empower, again, folks like dissidents in other countries and, and, um, and, you know, sort of human rights style use cases, but you can also definitely see uh, the problems with it and the ways that it can be a, a problematic force uh, in the world as well. And so I think that, yeah, you're getting into the philosophical territory, but I think that that's a very important place for us in, as an industry to go. 
with great power becomes comes great responsibility, right? Amen. Something like that. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. So exactly. so where do we go from here then, right? Big questions, right? Who has a crystal ball? No one um, that I know of. But where where do we go from here? I feel like this is maybe I'm kind of making this bigger than it is, but I feel like we're at a turning point specific to you know, censor- censorship resistance in Web3 and privacy and all of the discussions being taking place are like very important. And I think going to be very critical for the future of the space. Where do you think that we go from here? Um, I know kind of a general question, but curious for your thoughts. I think first and foremost, we have to go to a place of more nuance in the way that we talk about all of this. And you bring up censorship, censorship resistance, which I think is important to touch on, because it do- this is also bringing up the question of, you know, for example, Coinbase is going to be one of the larger validators of the Ethereum network as soon as Ethereum switches over to proof of stake. Coinbase is based in the US, they're a US regulated entity. And the question has been raised, I hope sort of wrongfully or in a misguided way of whether Coinbase is going to have some responsibility to exclude Tornado Cash transactions from the blocks that it proposes or signs off on, on Ethereum, which suddenly that's, you know, that's rife with censorship. This thing is not censorship resistant at all if that does wind up being the case. I think, to be clear, I don't anticipate that that will actually happen. Coinbase has come out multiple times and said, you know, if if the worst were to happen on that front, they would just not participate in validating and mining on Ethereum. Um, but it, it, you know, it is it is a, a real a real question, a real issue that's being reckoned with. And I think that that speaks to the way that we have spoken about all of this technology to date as censorship resistant, as something that can uh, guarantee or enhance privacy in a lot of cases when, lo and behold, it either can't or it does so, but with risk and with difficulty. You know, we love to sort of market the technology in these very kind of black and white ways. And the reality is just not that. And I think that you know, we've seen this uh, with products on these platforms where we've seen, for example, uh, USDC, one of the largest, most prominent stable coins, has had to freeze funds that were within uh, the Tornado Cash system. You know, that's not very censorship resistant. But I think that we need to not only stop talking about these things with these broad brushstrokes and start talking about them with more nuance about the reality of just how private, how censorship resistant, what does that mean in that circumstance? But also start to acknowledge that just because something is more censorship resistant doesn't make it better as a product necessarily. Just because something is completely private doesn't mean that that's actually what you want in those circumstances. And I really do believe that this is a place where the crypto industry, myself as a part of it, has fallen short over the last decade is in rooting product decisions and in rooting the way that we talk about all of this in the actual needs and wants of users as opposed to in sort of black and white ideology. Uh, So I think and I hope that's where we go. I think that that will be a very productive direction for the industry to go. Uh, But I'll be honest as well, there's a lot of uncertainty in the path to get there. Always uncertainty. That's like the only certainty there is, ironically. Um, Indeed. So Indeed. Lots of lots of big questions to be answered. Lots of what ifs. Um, I always close my podcast recordings with more, you know, what if kind of out there scenarios. Um, two different ones, right? So yeah. obviously, you and I are working in the space. Clearly, advocates for you know its potential to change financial services, change the broader society, really, in a, in a variety of ways, and. We, you know, could always talk about that, but lots to cover there. Um, my last questions though, if crypto takes off, if crypto wins, we see it become a huge part of society. We see it really embedded in like most areas of our life. And like, you know, a lot of people talk about, we won't even realize that we're interacting with it, that it's such a common part of what we do. It's like the internet, right? Um, if, if we see it get to that extent, what would the main reason for its success be? Um, you know, like what would it take to get us there most importantly? And on the flip side, doomsday scenario, 
everything, not, not to say everything to zero, but if crypto fails, if something happens to the crypto space that leads it to not really fulfilling the potential that we think it has, what would the major reason for that be? That makes sense. I'll start with the second question <laughs> and then I'll end on a positive note. I think if we see crypto fail, I think it will be because we as an industry of people building in crypto and building with this technology did not care enough to find genuine utility and real organic users of the products that we're building. I think it will be because we as an industry got distracted along the way with all of the yield schemes and Ponzi coins and you know whatever other kind of shiny objects come along and didn't bother to uncover the real users of it and the genuine utility. I think that if crypto does take off, I think that, and this is probably an unpopular opinion uh, amongst a lot of the sort of uh, original crypto folks who are very much rooted in like an anti-institutional mindset. But I think that should crypto take off, I think that it will be at least in part, thanks to adoption from big incumbent institutions, including Wall Street firms, including big payments providers, including big merchants. Um, you know, uh, my friend Arthur Brightman spoke on uh, a Bloomberg podcast a few months ago, talking about how decentralized finance and crypto in general had yet to find what its exports were meaning outside of the sort of self-referential internal systems to crypto, which people are already getting a lot of at least entertainment, if not uh, real utility from, how do we connect those through sort of exports to the real world? How do we uh, build those bridges between real world economies and crypto economies? And I think that, I, I do think that big companies and, and institutions and so forth will have a big role to play in that. So. That's that's my uh, rosier outlook for for what what it all may look like as it plays out. I was clapping on mute just because the, the second part of that too, right? I mean, this is the whole perfect putting a bow on this episode, right? Because that is what I wanted to create this podcast for, right? I fully believe, like to your point, the success of this space, whether we like it or not, is going to be large in part, although obviously not entirely, tied to buy-in of traditional financial institutions and those larger firms that drive the entire financial services space today and like society at large, right? So I think there has to be some sort of compromise. Bridges need to be built and there just has to be an in-between there and there has to be buy-in from both sides and cooperation in order for that to happen. So um, same great minds think alike perhaps on that, but let's make Joel, it happen. Yes. Right. Let, let's make it happen. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jill. This was fantastic. So, so glad we finally got the chance to actually talk and meet virtually. So really, really appreciate your time there. Appreciate you covering, um, a super important topic for all of our listeners as well. And to our listeners, thank you for, for tuning in and we will be back next week with another episode. All opinions expressed by your hosts in the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency.